This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we conclude our four-part series on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You know, the world Huxley creates uh, may be new, but certainly it's not brave. Michelle Hollebeck, in his 1998 novel, The Elementary Particles, references Brave New World in an unusual way. Instead of seeing it as a warning of an evil to be avoided, he, or at least his characters, find it a world to aspire to. Let me quote him. Everyone says Brave New World is supposed to be a totalitarian nightmare, a vicious indictment on our society. But that's just hypocritical BS. Brave New World is our idea of heaven, genetic manipulation, sexual liberation, the war against aging, the leisure society. (laughs) Wow. You know, uh, it's a conversation that Huxley thought that we should have as a society. You know, what constitutes a real human world and what is human society? And are, are we individuals living together or are we cells in a single organism called society with a small collection of men as brain trusts that are running it all, you know? In a Brave New World Revisited, Huxley has said this, In spite of the id and the unconscious, in spite of endemic neurosis and the prevalence of low IQs, most men and women are probably decent enough and sensible enough to be trusted with the direction of their own destinies. What a what a gracious thought. <laughs> I know. He said, I'm not saying we're not terrible or maybe even stupid, but so what? Let it go. But, of course, the world controllers of the brave new world, and maybe a lot of other people today, just flat out disagree with that. Mond in part four describes a world where men and women are not to be trusted with the direction of their own destinies. And as we reach the end of the book, we're going to listen to Mustafa Mond because he's going to tell us exactly why. In a nutshell, the answer is instability, to use his language. Independence was not made for man. God isn't compatible with machinery and scientific medicine and universal happiness. It would upset the whole social order if men started doing this on their own. 
You know, these are the arguments that we read here at the end of the book, but they're illustrating what he's been showing us starting in chapter one. Well, after reading the dialogue between uh, John and Mond, uh, so much of what we've seen illustrated makes more sense. I mean, really, this is a book that needs to be read twice, uh, as I can attest, (laughs) because when you read those first chapters, you're overwhelmed and confused. In episode one, uh, we tour with our uh, omniscient narrator, that central London hatchery and conditioning center, in a year of stability, AF 632, that means after Ford, by the way, <laughs> we learn that vivaporous reproduction, or birth as we would know it, has been replaced by the assembly line. Babies are manufacturing bottles. The director explains to us that the world is divided into castes, and everyone is conditioned to believe that they are equal and equally valuable, um, albeit they certainly are not equal in the way we think of equality today. Uh, we are introduced to a new set of values, and the value that prevails above everything else is happiness. The world state has solved man's happiness problem, and we are shown how this is achieved. You know, the way the uh, director describes it makes it seem flawless. Catron uh, Nickel, in her famous essay, Brave New World at 75, describes it in a different way. She says this, There is an unholy alliance of industrial capitalist, fascist, communist, psychoanalytic, and pseudoscientific ideologies as brought (laughs) forth about the end of history. The past is taboo. You know, history is bunk, as our Ford so eloquently said, and there is no future because history ends have been accomplished. There's no pain, deformity, crime. Anguish or social discontent, even death has no more sting. And children are acclimatized to the death palaces from the age of 18 months, encouraged to poke around and eat chocolate creams while the dying are ushered into oblivion on Soma, watching sports and pornography on television. That is quite a description. Well, there you go. Perfection. But I would call it ironic perfection. I mean, Nichols' tone questions uh, this condition that Michelle Holbeck calls the leisure society. The question is, is a leisure society a perfect society? I mean, Nichols' terms are full of loaded words. Capitalistic, this is what she says, capitalist, fascist, communist, psychoanalytic, and pseudoscientific ideologies. I mean, they're all heavily connotated, and they're used very negatively. I mean, she, like Huxley, makes zero distinction, which I think is interesting. There's nothing different between capitalism, fascism, communism, and pseudoscience, because it comes down to power. All the isms, and she throws science in the mix, are just paths to world control. (laughs) Exactly. And I love that she calls science uh, pseudoscience, you know, invoking a corrupted state of what we generally think of as being pure. In the second episode, which covers chapters two through five, we discuss uh, what this world state looks like for the inhabitants. And I refrain from uh, using the term citizen. That kind of denotes responsibility. And here people don't have any responsibility, much less any civic responsibility. Uh, The only value people have are as consumers, you know, in that world. Uh, A day in the life for Bernard and Lenina in the brave new world consists of happiness and consumption. Uh, It is through consumption that the capitalist, fascist, communist, (laughs) psychoanalytic and pseudoscientists control the world. Life on Earth is a series of pleasure-seeking distractions. 
you know, mildly competitive, non-strenuous recreational games, sex, drugs, and screen time, all to unlimited degrees. You know, the idea of being a drugged-up, unthinking infant with no impulse control and who aspires to meaningless existence of constant play and distraction is the ideal most submissive subject. Uh, world controllers uh, control individuals by eliminating any strength or resiliency in an individual and then by providing a path of low resistance knowing weak people always travel the easy road. In the third episode, uh, we traverse the ocean to arrive in New Mexico at the Savage Reservation. In episode three, uh, we discuss chapters 6 through 11, uh, touring one of the few remaining places that have not been integrated in the world state. On the reservation, Bernard and Lenina see our world in its most extreme. They see age and disease and relationships that are functional and dysfunctional. They see work and religion and death and difficult paths in life. Just looking at these conditions from afar sends both of them into soma uh, overload. Um, all of it's distressing with one exception. Bernard sees opportunity when he meets a resident whose mother is from the civilized world and, in fact, was left there by none other than his boss. And <laughs> Bernard gets permission to take this child of the reservation and his mother back to civilization. Uh, such a thing is normally forbidden. In fact, they were told when they arrived at their reservation that no one leaves a reservation. Uh, however, an exception is made. Mustafa Mond is intrigued at the possibility of an experiment. Linda, uh, the mother of Beta, returns with her son, John. And really, John is the one they want. But Bernard regretfully accepts Linda as the condition for bringing John. And John is excited to go. He thinks he's getting a ticket to heaven because he's different and an outsider. You know, John has suffered on the reservation. He's been rejected by the community. And in contrast, he's been fantasizing about the other place all of his life. His mother, Linda, has told him wonderful stories about it. And he quotes uh, Miranda from The Tempest. Oh, wonder how many goodly creatures are there here. How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And yet, he soon realizes his fantasies are just that, fantasies. The other place, as he calls it, is not the paradise he was expecting, and he's not happy. People are not good to each other. He actually calls a lot of them lice and maggots. This isn't an ideal community. There's no Juliet to his Romeo. I mean, he is infatuated with the beautiful Lenina, but we're going to see that at the end of this book, it's not going to end well. <laughs> nothing ever does. So we should probably say, uh, if you haven't finished the book, this episode is a spoiler. Uh, John the Savage's experience is one of self-discovery, uh, something that can be positive. But in this case, it does end in tragedy. Uh, on the reservation, if we recall, we learned that John found three things while he was alone in the desert. Oh, Yes. Time, death, and God. <laughs> I mean, it's a deliberate choice. Uh, it, it's what it means to be human. Uh, time is how we measure the value of our lives and our work on earth. And death is how we understand suffering. And God is where we look to find meaning. Uh, these stand in stark contrast to the reality of, of the world controllers that they've created for their consumers. In the world state, there is no time. There's no past. There's no future. 
There is only the present. And, you know, for us and for John, that's simply not the case. We always live in the context of time, and that means memories. It it also is a source of suffering. And in this final section, we see John struggle with the memories of his mother, his regrets, his disillusions. You know, these are negative, of course. Uh, But manipulating or using our time in many ways is not negative. It's how we find value and, you know, justify the suffering that we endure. Uh, Often we suffer on purpose. And we call this kind of suffering delayed gratification, you know, which is uh, the use of time as a means to create later and greater rewards as a result of our sacrifice and hard work and basically any kind of self-discipline. You know, John understands this, and in some of the few passages where he finds happiness, he calls it rustic solitude. (laughs) You know, the narrator says this, The work gave him an intense pleasure. After those weeks in idleness in London with nothing to do, Whenever he wanted anything but to press a switch or turn a handle, it was pure delight to be doing something that demanded skill and patience. You know, I hate to say this, but it kind of reminds me of the Koheleth or Ecclesiastes and those verses that say, Our days are short and sorrowful. Enjoy the fruit of one's labor. This is the gift of God. I mean, I'm I'm quoting the Bible here. Well, you know, I believe when we ended up the series on Ecclesiastes, one of the things we said is that Brave New World is the anti-Ecclesiastes. <laughs> that's true, and it it's, is. It's the exact opposite. You know, and that's a great point, and, and one that no one in the world state would know because the Bible is a banned book. Uh, John leaves a wilderness understanding there is meaning in suffering. I mean, he's romanticized a lot of life through reading Shakespeare, and he has many wrong notions. Uh, but he does seem to understand that suffering brings great reward, and great reward is what he's hoping uh, in what he calls the other place. Human teachers and mentors really teach us how to find meaning. You know, great literature also teaches us concepts of sacrifice and time and suffering. And uh, they are spiritual or even religious concepts. And in the world state, spiritual meaning is to be completely avoided. I love reading Mon's explanations. Uh, He says this, The greatest care is taken to prevent you from loving anyone too much. There's no such thing as a divided allegiance. You're so conditioned that you can't help doing what you ought to do. And what you ought to do is on the whole so pleasant, so many of the natural impulses are allowed free play, that there really aren't any temptations to resist. And if ever, by some unlucky chance, anything unpleasant should somehow happen, why there's always Soma to give you a holiday from the facts. And there's always Soma to calm your anger, to reconcile you to your enemies, to make you patient and long-suffering. I mean, uh, in the past, you could only accomplish these things by making a great effort, and after years of hard moral training, now you swallow two or three half-gram tablets, and there you are. Anybody can be virtuous now. You can carry at least half of your mortality about in a bottle. Christianity without tears, that's what Soma is. (laughs) <laughs> wow. You know, and we're supposed to be repulsed by this, by Soma, really, at this point. John is certainly repulsed by Soma. I mean, he doesn't want to feel indifferent. He's a creature of passion, and he yearns to feel the passion that he's read about in all those Shakespearean plays. He yearns to experience relationship, human connection, beauty, truth, love. 
But look where he's found himself in a world where these things not only don't exist, they're forbidden from existing. The first thing he reacts to, by the way, is is not that. It's Bernard. Because he gets tired of Bernard exploiting him. And so he just refuses to participate. And this brings Bernard great shame. Uh, he goes from this incident to another where we see him chatting with Helmholtz. And at first, you know, he really feels like he's got this connection with Helmholtz. They read together and both men appreciate beauty. But appreciating beauty just isn't enough. Helmholtz, he's a lover of beauty, but he can't understand Romeo and Juliet. I mean, he can't understand the passion in the text. He can't understand the relationships. He can't under the, understand the relationship between parent and child, which is essential to the story, Romeo and Juliet. But he certainly can't understand the passion between lovers. And when he reads about it, he just, he literally busts out laughing. Uh, he reads the part, well, really, John reads to him the passage where uh, Juliet's pressured by her parents to marry Paris. This, by the way, is one of my favorite scenes of the book, if you haven't listen to our episodes on Romeo and Juliet. There's a there's a plug for you. But anyway, uh, onto this, Heimhold reacts to what, you know, John reads, and he says this, you can't expect me to keep a straight face about mothers and fathers. And who's going to get excited about a boy having a girl or not having her? The reason that Helmholtz can't is because he's never been in a wilderness. He doesn't understand time. He doesn't understand death. He doesn't understand God. As Mond explains, he's been conditioned to not love anyone too much. He doesn't have relationships. He doesn't know suffering. He doesn't even know impulse control or delayed gratification. Uh, we know both from psychology and from personal experience that there is a greater reward when I regulate impulses, uh, when I invoke the concept of time. But uh, if you don't know about time, as no one in this brave new world does, how can you understand impulse control? <laughs> Good point. You know, how can you know about sacrifice? Uh, John's attempts at understanding impulse control, sacrifice, and passion really turned tragic in John's <laughs> relationship with Lenina. John built up an idea of Lenina in his mind, this mythical idea of womanhood like he'd read about in Shakespeare. And he wants to live out somehow this passion of Romeo, and he wants the great reward found in a sacrifice for love, and he's read about that, and neither Helmholtz nor Lenina have any idea what he's talking about. Uh, you know, not only uh, have they read about it, but they haven't even seen a romantic relationship before. Uh, the whole thing comes to a, a comical climax in the uh, non-love scene <laughs> between John and Lenina. Lenina has been experiencing attraction towards John. John has been experiencing whatever, you know, this is for Lenina. But when they're alone and could possibly have come together physically, John rejects her. You know, Lenina is left reducing his uh, Shakespearean declarations to just mad dronings about vacuum cleaners. <laughs> and he's hostile. She's afraid and utterly confused. And I could not help but think of Daisy Buchanan. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Well, you know, it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, there she is. I mean, she stands naked and she's repeating these lines. She's hurting these feelings and... He responds. I mean, he calls her a whore, but she's never heard that word before. Uh, this is the last time, by the way, that Lenina, we get to see Lenina until she emerges from that helicopter with two tears on her cheek in the last pages of the book. I mean, this relationship between these two, ironically, is tragic. 
But before we jump to that ending, let's not skip over a lot that we're supposed to understand. So let's jump back to chapter 13 and change subjects a little bit from romance to science, because this is at the heart of the book. It's really the subcontext on every single page. In chapter 13, Helmholtz and John, you know, they're having this conversation about Romeo and Juliet. We just talked about that, what beauty is, relationships, and midway through this dialogue, you know, we, the reader, were interrupted, and our focus is shifted to Mustafa Mon. I mean, they literally cut the text up, and here we are in another place entirely. At first, you have to think, well, this doesn't make sense. This, there's not a connection. Why are we suddenly transported from Romeo and Juliet to a world controller reading a paper called A New Theory of Biology? We must remember, you know, Mon's job as world controller is to make sure everyone is happy. He will later acknowledge that this is not easy. Happiness is a hard master. But here he is. He's reading this scientific paper, which he loves. He finds it amazingly insightful. He finds it informative. In fact, he is so impressed, he determines he must destroy it. <laughs> okay. Let me quote him. It was the sort of idea that might easily decondition the more unsettled minds among the higher class and make them lose their faith in happiness as the sovereign good and take to believing instead that the goal was somewhere beyond, somewhere outside the present human sphere, that the purpose of life was not the maintenance of well-being, but some intensification and refining of consciousness, some enlargement of knowledge, which was, the comptroller reflected, quite possibly true, but not in the present circumstance admissible. <laughs> hmm, we can't be having that stuff going no, on. No, even if it is true. Hence, we see the clash of civilizations. I mean, uh, values always determine outcomes. And we see how human thought uh, is always political, you know, not just in the arts, but also, in fact, especially in the scientific world. Um, it's not something we think about. We have been taught from kindergarten that art is pure and that science is neutral. And that, of course, in its most basic sense is true. Uh, we've also been taught that there is a fight between religion and science, but that science is where we find real truth. This is almost cliche, uh, but Huxley contradicts every bit of that. And really, it isn't what we would expect an atheist evolutionist to say. Huxley does not trust science, even though he loves it. Uh, well, should I say he doesn't trust scientists. He does <laughs> trust science, but not the people doing it. He speaks uh, directly about the scientific caste in Brave New World Revisited. He questions their trustworthiness um, to the question that he quotes in Latin. <laughs> you mean, quis custodiet custodes? <laughs> yes. Uh, who will mount guard over our guardians? Who will engineer the engineers? Uh, the answer is a bland denial that they need any supervision. And, you know, there seems to be a uh, a touching belief among certain PhDs in sociology that PhDs in sociology will never be corrupted by power. They're like Sir Galahads. Their strength is as the strength of ten because their heart is pure, and their heart is pure because they are scientists and have taken 6,000 hours of social studies. <laughs> you know, when you read Huxley like that, it, it, it fails the say-out-loud test completely. I mean, it seems foolish. Why 
aren't we suspicious? Why don't we think we should keep an eye on those practicing science? And this is a little side note right here. The general public doesn't understand how competitive scientists are against each other <laughs> in every scientific field. But, you know, we think of science as the pursuit of knowledge. And, of course, it is that. But knowledge is ultimately power. Uh, so what do you do once you have it? This is why Huxley asked the famous Latin phrase, which is... Quis custodiet custodes? <laughs> or, who will mount guard over our guardians? Uh, science, in this sense, can be put beside uh, fascism, communism, and capitalism. I mean, what those things have in common is the pursuit of power. And so, how do you keep science pure? Power destroys and contaminates everything that it touches. Uh, science or scientists are not immune, uh, even if the scientists are not necessarily malevolent to begin with, even if they don't think of themselves as necessarily malevolent. Uh, to think that you are entitled to run the lives of others, you know, in Huxley's view, is already corruption. And Mustafa Mond isn't malevolent. He started his career as a physicist, but at some point he made a choice to pursue power. You know, in his own mind, it was for the general good. It was for stability, as he tells John. But as readers, we really question this. I mean, science as an ideal should enrich the human experience. Uh, but if you have that kind of power, you know, power to submit nature and humans to your will in the name of the general good, then, then it becomes dangerous. You know, in other words, uh, science can deliver man from bondage, but it can also put man in bondage. And Huxley seems to think that this is the more likely of the two pursuits, given the heart of man. Um, and it's fair to say that all of the brave New World characters, even uh, Watson Helmholtz, uh, as illustrated in this interaction with John, are really enslaved in some very important ways that violate what we consider to be their humanity. I mean, Mon controls everyone, and he loves that. Yeah, everyone is enslaved. I mean, we see it in the Soma. I mean, the minute the Soma wears off, weakness emerges, anxiety emerges, fear, shame. These things emerge. There's no resiliency. The antidote to all the problems of life come down to Soma. Uh, when Linda comes back from the reservation, uh, when the director of the hatchery runs away, what do they do? They take Soma and they never come out of their Soma holiday. There's a euphemism for you. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious in Bernard. It's obvious in Linda. Uh, and it's ironic, especially in the character of Lenina, because she tries so diligently to do and to be everything that she's supposed to do and supposed to be. But we see that she struggles, you know, th and this isn't a tangent. Let's think about this. Socrates in the, in the, in the Republic, he asked Glaucon this question, have we any greater evil for a city than what splits it and makes it many instead of one? Or is a greater good than what binds it together and makes it one? Lenina buys what Socrates is selling. She just really wants to be the one cell in the organism that she knows to be the world state. She knows she's not supposed to be an individual and she fights herself on that. She repeats the lines that she's learned in her sleep. She attends her solitary services. She switches up her sexual partners, even though she doesn't really even want to. She plays obstacle golf. She attends feelies. She takes her Soma every single day. But none of that is enough. 
we see in Lenina an undercurrent of discontentment from the beginning of this book until the very end. She illustrates an internal, intuitive, and unconscious struggle to be human. But, you know, Mon thinks he's thought of that too. And he has a remedy for that, for when the Soma isn't enough. And she tries it. She subjects herself to violent passion, surrogate treatment, and fake pregnancies. Or, as Mon calls it, VPS. (laughs) Man. Well, yes, uh, Mond explains the term VPS uh, to John in his monologue in chapter 17. Uh, John states that there is something important about danger, about living dangerously. Mond agrees that that is biologically true, and for that reason, everyone is required to take a VPS treatment once a month. It's a hormonal treatment designed to produce in a person the complete physiological equivalent of fear and rage without what they call any of the inconveniences. (laughs) You know, an adrenaline rush for no reason. In his words, all the tonic effects of murdering Desdemona by Othello without any of the inconveniences. (laughs) That's what we're calling it now, an inconvenience. Well, Yeah, those emotions are inconvenient. (laughs) John isn't interested in VPS, I think it's fair to say. And I might add, you know, it hasn't really worked for Lenina either. No, it doesn't work. And, of course, that is the big argument. Can science overcome its maker? Mon says yes. Um, And to quote, us, the modern world, you you can only be independent of God while you've got youth and prosperity. Independence won't take you safely to the end. Well, we've got youth and prosperity right up to the end. What follows? Evidently that we can be independent of God. Uh, You know, the religious sentiment will compensate us all for our losses, but there aren't any losses for us to compensate. Religious sentiment is superfluous. And why should we go hunting for a substitute for youthful desires when youthful desires never fail? A substitute for distractions when we go on and join all the old fooleries to the very last. Well, there you go. And yet, let's think about what he says. He doesn't overcome the ultimate, which is he calls the very last, the law of nature or God that, you know, we call death. Death has a sting if you're awake. It doesn't for the Soma enhanced Linda, who isn't awake, but it does for the Soma-free John. The phone rings while Lenina is there hiding naked in that bathroom, and John is called to the Park Lane Hospital for the dying. His mind is filled, and I quote, with death, with grief, and his remorse. I mean, John pushes his way through endless twins. He calls them maggots. He mockingly remembers his original dream of what he thought this world was. I mean, he quotes Miranda again. How beautiful mankind is, oh, brave new world. But at this point, you know, he recalls the original text. And and I quote him from Miranda because she is proclaiming the possibilities of loveliness, the possibilities of transforming even the nightmare into something fine and noble. Oh, brave new new world. It was a challenge. A command. And yet, again, uh, we see this is going to end up in some really comical way uh, because that's not what we have at all. It, it becomes comical and even ironic if you're familiar with Julius Caesar 
Because again, John is going to channel his favorite Shakespearean heroes. He's there in the hospital, surrounded by all these goofy deltas. And he looks at them and he's going to quote the famous line from Julius Caesar from Brutus, who says, listen, I beg you, lend me your ears. Then he goes on to say, don't take that horrible stuff. It's poison. It's poison. He's talking about the Soma. He then proceeds. He starts a riot because he opens up the window and throws out all those Delta people's Soma pills. <laughs> Bernard and Helmholtz, they're called. But when they arrive, uh, they look and they think, oh my gosh, this guy's going to get himself killed. The Deltas are charging him and they're enraged. They want their Soma. And of course, Helmholtz joins in, starts tossing Soma pills, and Bernard, not so much. The Deltas are only subdued when the police come and, yes, discharge Soma vapor. (laughs) (laughs) Man, we could use that in a classroom sometimes. I know. (laughs) Soma vapor. Yeah. After two minutes of being hosed down with uh, Soma vapor, the Deltas are crying, kissing, hugging each other. You know, fresh supplies of Soma are brought on the scene. And Bernard, Helmholtz, and John are arrested, and they are brought to Mond. You know, it's just another funny scene. I mean, here these three guys are being brought to Mond. This, in some ways, results in what is a rhetorical climax for this book. It's not the dramatic climax. That's still to come. Uh, But we do finally get to see the historical and philosophical justification explained for everything that we've been looking at in this brave new world. We get to hear the arguments for control over science, for the control over art, the control over God. You know, a few of the quotes that come out of Mon's mouth uh, would feel shocking, except we've been primed for them through the story. For example, he says this, Real science is dangerous, and so those who have it will muzzle it. They will limit the scope of its research to meet their ends. You know, for Huxley, some things in life just conflict with each other. It's unavoidable, and we must make choices. Art and freedom of thought are dangerous. Independent ideas are not compatible with happiness. Truth and beauty are not free. Everything comes at a cost. And we don't think of it this way, but in some real sense, the cost for these things is comfort and happiness. Uh, you know, these ideas are counterintuitive. I mean, who doesn't believe uh, we can have both freedom and comfort? You know, uh, Huxley absolutely sees these as ultimately incompatible. And he also sees technology as something that stands in conflict with community and in conflict with friendship. It has the power to isolate us physically, but more uh, perniciously, it can isolate us spiritually. And that is how he ends his book. You know, for all the talk of government control and scientific tyranny and biological engineering, the book doesn't end that way. The book ends with personal tragedy. After Mon's monologue, John says this, I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. Mustafa responds, in fact, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. And Savage agrees. He says, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Mond ends by saying this, you're welcome. 
I mean, when he says that to me, it feels kind of ominous, uh, like it's not good, but good, because that's what I was going to give you anyway. Hmm. <laughs> you know, Mond sends Bernard and Helmholtz to islands. John asks, but he is not allowed to go with them. John is forced into a situation from which he will not be able to extract himself. Oh, yes. It's intentionally cruel. Um, John doesn't understand that no one is built for isolation. And, you know, the Bible says it this way. It is not good that man should be alone. But Mond forces John into an existential double bind, which I love that term, by the way. Uh, either you conform to the civilized world or be alone. And, you know, John chooses the latter. Uh, the paragraph where John, Bernard, and Helmut say goodbye to each other is the only point of real human connection in the whole book. It says this, There was a silence, in spite of their sadness, because of it even, for their sadness was the symptom of their love for one another. The three young men were happy. Aww. I mean, that just stands out. You don't see that anywhere else in the book. I mean, it's sweet. It's really a strong statement. Uh, we really cannot be conditioned to total human apathy. You know, Bernard and Helmholtz, to some degree, have learned how to love. And John has experienced it. And for none of them did love express itself in any sexual way. They learned they are more than just sexual beings. And we see something meaningful, really, in this moment. It stands out starkly. It is. And it's sweet. I mean, on their parting, John says, I'm damned. He has no idea how true that statement really is. He goes as far away as he can get from the frenzy of that London society, but he cannot get far enough away. He goes and he struggles, and really he struggles a lot. What stands out more than anything is his internal struggle over Linda's death. I mean, he takes responsibility for it. He feels guilt for it, and he tries to purge himself, and really it's unhealthy. He chooses self-harm. Garrett, this is so hard uh, for me to understand. Why does John flog himself? <laughs> well, you know, there are no fixed rules about this. I mean, uh, people do this sort of thing for, for many different reasons. Uh, in John's case, he likely doesn't even know why he's doing this. Uh, but in general, self-harm is often um, anxiety-based. Uh, it's also a symptom of abuse and early trauma. Uh, it can be a result of uh, trying to find catharsis, you know, for emotions that are really trapped inside and, uh, you know, an attempt to regain control over something that has gone crazy. All of these really could apply to John. And John is calling out for help, but no one cares or is even even capable to help. I mean, he needs a friend, a mentor, a counselor. I mean, he needs empathy. And none of that exists in this world. No. In fact, he's going to get the opposite the few moments of happiness that we see, you know, here on out to the end of the book, he will not get through connection with another person. He experiences delight in beautiful scenery. He feels delight in his physical labor. But those two things, uh, although they heal him in part, are not enough. Eventually, he's going to be spotted by three delta minuses. Can you get lower than a delta minus? Yeah, you can get an epsilon minus, I oh, guess. Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> but you're right. These are not alpha people. You know, they watch him flog himself. They're fascinated. And instead of calling a doctor, which, you know, would be the right move, 
they call a reporter. The reporter comes, and this leads to a movie guy coming, a guy by the name of Darwin Bonaparte, and he films John without his consent. He produces a documentary, a feely documentary. (laughs) Twelve days after he films this, it premieres, and London descends on John the Savage. They descend with a chant. We want the whip. Everyone wants and they're enthralled. They're entertained by John's self-harm. This is pretty sick and unimaginable. You have to keep in mind, uh, this is a world devoid of any sense of empathy. I mean, everything is a show. No one matters, and John is just an intoxicating diversion. And, you know, a reader has to think uh, Mond knew something like this would happen. There's there's no suggestion that he sends the Deltas to find John, but he knows John is on a path of self-destruction. Well, and, of course, the ending is just so brutal, and it's so tragic. I mean, helicopters come, and they bring more and more spectators until finally Lenina emerges with Henry. We know it's Lenina, not because they use her name, but because John calls her a strumpet. It's the word that he called her last on that disastrous date where she's left hiding naked in the bathroom. (laughs) You know, ironically, uh, the fantasy of Lenina has been a constant since he's been at the lighthouse. But when he sees the real Lenina, he's mean. He insults her with words and, and then he rushes at her with his whip. Right, he doesn't just call her a strumpet, he also calls her a fitchu. Now that word comes straight out of Shakespeare. We see it in Othello and we see it in King Lear. It means you're a stinky prostitute. <laughs> oh, what a what a name. Well, it's interesting because we begin this book with a title that references, you know, Shakespearean romance. But we're going to end with this low language that invokes the worst of Shakespearean tragedy. (laughs) Wow. You know, and he doesn't just rush her. The text reads that uh, he was slashing at her with his whip of small cords and, and Henry, her date, as we would expect from a brave New World inhabitant, doesn't turn and protect her. Instead, and I quote, he does this, he bolts out of harm's way behind the helicopter. You know, Mon has explained this. Civilization has no need of nobility or heroism, and we certainly see that they they have none. They have none. (laughs) You know, and the savage, you know, he absolutely has lost his mind at this point. He slashes at Lenina, and he's yelling, fry, lechery, fry, oh, the flesh. And then finally he says this, kill it, kill it. We're left to assume that that's what happens. And Lenina is dead, although this isn't really explicitly stated. Yes, uh, and this has not happened in seclusion, but it's happened in front of an audience. And the audience is not just entertained by the brutal murder of a woman. They're intoxicated and titillated by it to the point that somebody yells, orgy-porgy, and they uh, systematically create a solidarity circle I'm not sure it's possible to be more grotesquely ironic at this point. So let's quote the text here. Orgy porgy, round and round and round, beating one another in six, eight time. Orgy porgy. It was after midnight when the last of the helicopters took its flight. 
stupefied by stoma and exhausted by a long-drawn frenzy of sensuality, the savage lay sleeping in the heather. The sun was already high when he awoke. He lay for a moment, blinking in owlish incomprehension of the light, then suddenly remembered everything. Oh my God, my God. He covered his hands. Oh, he covered his eyes with his hands. He is likely the only one that could understand what happened, and he cannot recover from this huge moral failure. And he has no internal or, or external resources. He's got no friends, no family. There's no one to forgive him, and he cannot forgive himself. No, he might could possibly defend himself against outside attacks. But in loneliness, you're defenseless against your own attacks on yourself. You know, that evening, the helicopters come back. Uh, but this time, the door of the lighthouse is ajar. And let me quote the end of the book. Slowly, very slowly, like two unhurried compass needles, the feet turned towards the right, north, northeast, East, southeast, south, southwest, then paused and after a few seconds turned as unhurriedly back towards the left. South, southwest, south, southwest, south, southeast, east. This book ends exactly the way that it begins. Human death. And it doesn't feel that way. You know, we opened the book with these lines about community, identity, stability, but then the doors to the hatchery open and inside we are seeing, well, we see cold, lifeless rooms. And I quote, the light was frozen, dead, a ghost. We're told they're manufacturing life, but these are are the life forms that enjoy watching a man beat to death a defenseless woman and in fact celebrate this. Perhaps this is not life, but that's not the only thing we're to notice about the bizarre ending. Notice how much attention is given this concept of direction. It's a point of emphasis in the text. And when we see something like that, we know that we're looking at something symbolic. We know we're seeing something archetypal. So what is that? Well, you know, we know what it means to follow the North Star. That means to find your way, right? In most contexts, North represents wisdom, one's ability to be a warrior, one's ability to think. South is the opposite of that. South represents healing, but it also represents passion. East, which is where our story ends, represents new beginnings. And that's interesting. It's a very mysterious way to end such a dark novel. Huxley calls his book a negative utopia. It opens up the ending. There's no doubt, you know, this book ends with the death of a man and a woman. But the last image is literally a man hanging on a rope, dangling between dreams. This is a cautionary tale, maybe even more than a picture of doom. Huxley believes in us and in some odd way, tries to create an ending of hope. 
It's his reminder that maybe the brave new world isn't real. It's Today, it's not AF 632, and we have not yet destroyed our individuality on the altar of distraction and comfort, and we don't need to. We don't have to give up love or passion or great thoughts or pure science, even if they promise us the world. Perhaps we can still choose for ourselves, choose as John has chosen, God, poetry, real danger, freedom, goodness, and yes, even sin. Because it is in those things, and perhaps only in those things, that we can find truth, freedom, beauty, and yes, finally love. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, this has been quite a book. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading it for the second time and discussing it with you. And everybody else, we want to say thank you for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it as well. As always, look for our listening guides on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Feel free to connect with us on our social media. For sure, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, Most importantly, though, please share an episode with a friend. Text them, tweet a link, whatever you do to share the things that you enjoy. When you do, that's how we grow. Peace out.